Did you know that it has been concluded that there is no biological test to determine sex? Or that I wouldn't have been allowed to run an Olympic marathon until 1984? Or that the trans population of the United States is twice that of the city of Vancouver? I'm Nigel Fish. And I'm Katie Marshall. And I'm Tessa Fisher. And this is the... Wait a minute, there's someone new here. Hey, we've got a new person. Hey guys. We have our very first ever guest. Uh, We have Tessa Fisher here. She's a PhD candidate at Arizona State University School of Earth and Space Exploration, an avid runner, and likely the world's only queer trans astrobiologist. It's a pretty, pretty unique uh, field. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so tell us, uh, Tessa, how long have you been running? Um, okay, so I first started running occasionally, I guess my sophomore year of college. Kind of fell out of it for a while. Um, and then sort of got back into it once I hit grad school. What really sort of catalyzed it, though, is I started dating the person who eventually came, became my fiance, um, and she was a she had ran varsity track and field at when she was in college, and so she kind of got me back into it. And then um, as I got further into transition, uh, started my transition, I got more into it, partially because I figured it would be a good way to shed upper body mass, um, but also just because I, you know, I found it really good for me emotionally to sort of get a lot of stuff out, and um, I've kind of been hooked ever since, and this past year I ran my first um, 5Ks, so yeah. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit, it was actually grad school where I started running a lot too, and I, I think people who are either dealing with grad school or, let's say, with transition, it's amazing how running can kind of give you a little bit of emotional space in a way that, that some other ac- activities don't, or at least team sports never did for me. Yeah, yeah. So we've recruited Tessa's help for our episode on gender, sex, and running. We're exploring everything from why men are often faster to how uh, the Olympics have defined gender in sport. Uh, It's a totally fascinating topic uh, where science and society collide. And we've decided to cover it while we're gearing up for the Summer Olympics in Rio and also during uh, Pride Month here in Vancouver. So... So why is it you mention gender and sex as separate topics? Oh, yeah. Uh, That's because it's not as simple as you might think. It's not as simple as, you know, two X chromosomes or an XY set of chromosomes leading to male and female bodies that makes men and women. It's biology, which is notoriously complicated. Um, Biology always exists on a continuum, and and sex determination is absolutely no exception to that rule. Um, Biology is a science of exceptions. It's also psychology, which uh, is even more complicated, and societal expectations and the way that society defines gender roles and the way people sort of sort of find themselves fitting in the midst of all of that. Okay, so, it sounds like it's going to be a complicated episode. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually some of my favorite topics are those that involve science and society together. Um, and I think is is a really, really neat place. And that's why part of, partially we've had uh, Tessa giving us a hand on this one because – yeah, it's just it's a really really neat topic. So yeah, let's uh, let's uh, start with the definitions then, I guess. Um, yeah. What 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 is the difference between sex and gender? I think uh, Tessa probably has the best on to, on this. Yeah, uh, having kind of lived this question, um, so I mean, both of these words have very broad and sometimes nebulous definitions. But generally speaking, the quick and dirty version is sex refers to um, the sort of the biological basis of your body. 
um, whether or not you produce eggs or produce sperm, whether you know you have X two X chromosomes or an XY chromosome. Now, admittedly, um, as we will discuss later, there are a lot of variations between just male and female, even in the human population. So it's not exactly a hard and fast rule. And in some cases, even whether or not you determine the boundaries between the male sex and the female sex can get kind of foggy. Gender, on the other hand, is um, sort of related to, but ultimately independent of sex. It's basically how people perceive themselves as being a man or a woman or both or neither, um, as well as the societal expectations that are assigned with the definition of being a man or a woman, depending on where you live and what time period. Um, gender is a very complicated issue for that reason, since really a lot of it is ultimately socially constructed, but at the same time, there is definitely a component to it that seems pretty innate in people. Yeah, I find this really interesting, because there's not just uh, gender identity, right? But there's also gender expression. And and that was something, yeah. so gender expression, if I've got this right, is sort of the way that you um, show the world around you your gender. So... Um, you know, in some women that might involve wearing makeup or having long hair, and in some women that might involve, hey, you know, I like to wear like jeans and boots, and you know, like the way that they express that gender can vary yeah. very differently. I was definitely a tomboy, but I never <laughs> felt like my gender identity was anything other than female. Yeah, and I mean, it's exactly that. I mean, growing up, I was actually not a particularly feminine child. Um, um, and I mean, now I, I do present pretty femininely, but growing up, I never felt the need to. Um, and honestly, had I been raised as a girl, I probably would have been an incorrigible tomboy. <laughs> Admittedly, I'm also a lesbian, which is also probably part of that, but that's also a separate issue from gender and gender expression and a whole other Yeah, I was going to say, I have uh, friends who are, who are lesbian who are very femme, and for them, it's really frustrating because they don't always know how to signal that they're interested in other women. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Femme invisibility is a major problem. <laughs> Definitely. So let's get back to some of the biology. Um, I, I find, I think part of the problem that people have with sort of mixing up sex and gender is that they're too prudish to say sex because it's that can also mean sex is in coitus. Um, and, and it's kind of funny because like I review a lot of manuscripts, um, like scientific papers. And so it, I, I'm an entomologist myself and people will say, oh, gender, when they're talking about like fruit flies. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like we don't know what the gender identity of these fruit <laughs> flies is. <laughs> so, I'm not even sure how you'd ask them. Yeah, I don't, you know, and you actually, you can get more feminine seeming behaviors in male fruit flies, depending on, on different traits. So it's, yeah, it, it's definitely really complicated. And actually the American Physiological Society has even weighed in on the difference. Um, and, and they say that gender is generally inappropriate when we're talking about non-human animals that gender is really something that's a human societal sort of thing. Uh, so when we're talking about sex, we're talking biology, sex chromosomes, types of gonads. So those are the tissues that produce that the reproductive cells, whether ovaries, testes, that produce eggs or sperm. Uh, sex hormones, um, internal reproductive anatomy, so things like your uterus or... Um, or, uh, yeah, and external reproductive ana anatomy, which, you know, penis, vagina, that sort of thing. But of all those characteristics, the most important from the perspective of a, of a runner is sex hormones. There's no evidence that your reproductive anatomy has any sort of impact on your running speed, and neither do the actual chromosomes you have. It's the action of those hormones from, from the best that I can understand. So we're going to be focusing on that for the majority of the podcast. 
So since we're talking about gender and sex and all these different things, um, I know in gender identity, there's a difference between like cis identity and, and trans identity. Uh, do you want to explain those? Transgender or just trans is refers to someone who has a gender identity that is different from the one that they were assigned at birth. I'm transgender because I identify as being a woman, even though I was um, designated a boy when I was born based off of various physiological factors. Um, cisgender, or just cis, on the other hand, is simply the opposite of that. It's someone whose gender identity aligns with um, the gender they were assigned at birth, which, you know, in Katie and Nigel's case, I'm guessing is probably how you all identify. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah. And, you know, something that I I also think, um, and I was talking about this uh, uh, earlier this week with uh, Kai Scott, the um, situation of gender variant people who may have a gender identity that is neither entirely male or female, it might be somewhere in between, or it might be neither. I mean, would they be sort of considered under the trans umbrella? Uh, yeah, generally speaking, um, the trans umbrella is pretty broad. And yeah, it's uh, someone whose expression or identity doesn't really fit into sort of the normal binary expectations of male or female, or fluctuates between them, um, or is entirely separate from them, generally falls into the trans umbrella. So you not only do you have trans men and women, you have people who are genderqueer or non-binary identified, who don't necessarily identify as a man or a woman, people who are gender fluid and have identities that fluctuate over time. Depending on who you talk to, people who are, you know, um, drag queens, and cross-dressers may or may not fall into the trans umbrella, as may butch lesbians. They're kind of more edge cases. But definitely anyone who's you know, a trans man, trans woman, a genderqueer, non-binary, definitely fall on, on that umbrella. Okay, cool. Thanks. And I remember we talked about this a little before, and I was a little confused about someone who might be um, like intersex. For them, if they've been designated as a particular gender at birth, they could be cis or trans, depending on how they their gender identity um, is. Depends. Yes. Right. Okay. So someone who, let's say, is intersex but was designated female at birth may figure out that their gender identity is male, so they would be trans. Yes. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, if they grow up and they're fine identifying as female, they are cis, even though they're intersex. Right. That makes sense. So why does all this matter for runners at all? Right. Uh, well, as much as I hate to admit it, um, men are often faster. Now, I yeah. say this <laughs> in in the sense that it, often we talk about in this podcast that we can make generalizations, but there are many, many, many people who do not fit these generalizations. Um, not all men are faster than all women. Right. So, like, yeah, professional like professional female athletes will outrun ninety nine percent of men. But yeah, if we look at the top 100 fastest finishers of the marathon, men are about 14% faster than women on average. Right. And and that's actually a question that's really been fascinating to a lot of researchers. There was a while where this was considered to be um, an effect of women just being really discouraged from doing physical activity. So, uh, for instance, um, the Olympics actually didn't allow women to run the marathon until 1984. So there was this thought that perhaps with you know, greater length of training and with more female athletes out there that we would actually end up having women catching up to men. Um, but that doesn't seem to have happened. There are many um, physical differences on average between men and women. Again, keeping in mind that that people vary. Uh, men do on average tend to have lower percentage body fat, bigger lungs and heart, more muscle. 
it's hard sometimes also to separate out uh, psychological differences from physical differences, from sort of socialized expectations uh, between gender roles. I was part of a study on um, sprint interval training. And uh, so we, you were, had to run as fast as you could for 45 seconds on a treadmill. And talking to the people who were running the study, they said, I, they said about 90% of the men in that study puked and none of the women did. And I find this really fascinating because, you know, maybe there is some physiological difference between men and women that men are more likely to puke. But it's also possible that um, men feel a social pressure to to push themselves harder than women do. And they're more likely then to to puke as a result of running too fast. Right. And and separating out those explanations is, is actually really it's tricky. It's kind of funny because at the last 10K we ran together, I, I nearly threw up. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're, you had no problem. So Yeah. But, you know, who knows? That also might just be – there might be some some psychological differences. Who knows? Uh, one of my very favorite studies uh, from the early 80s when people were, were thinking maybe maybe it was just physical differences between men and women, uh, they actually studied the effect of body fat on, on women's running time. So women on average have body fat percentages about 10% higher than men. I mean, that body fat is not assisting with moving their bodies, so it's essentially dead weight. We're actually giving men backpacks. So <laughs> to nice. make up the nice. weight difference, uh, 10 men, 10 women were compared. Something I found really interesting was that in the study, the women actually ran significantly about 50% more than the men, about 60 kilometers a week rather than 40. So women work harder, Nigel. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah so, we do. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, that's part of it is I think but, we, we also feel like we have to work that much harder to be that, you know. It's right. good. But you just yeah. said, I mean, the puking. Yeah. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know about this. But anyways. We put more effort in. Yeah, yeah. I have no yeah. idea. Uh, so the researchers gave the men uh, weighted backpacks to simulate the extra weight of the, of the body fat that women runners have and then had them run. And when they added the weight uh, to the men, they found that that actually reduced the difference in, in the distance that the men were able to run to exhaustion. Uh, so the difference between men and women was reduced by about a third. Only a third. Yeah, so that that was actually really surprising to me. I would have okay. thought it would have a much bigger so, effect. Yeah, you thought it would have be a bigger effect, eh? Yeah. Yeah, although, I mean, I guess it's a little bit like wearing a backpack is very different than having fat distributed on your body. Yeah, they, they had actually talked about that in the paper, and they um, pointed out that they've done other studies that looked at the effects of body fat just within a gender, and they were finding that the backpack effect was about the same as what it would be for, for body fat as well. Okay. So... Yeah. Um, something interesting is that humans actually have a, um, sort of a surprising amount of what we call sexual dimorphism. So we do see men tending to be taller and heavier than women in humans. Um, it, you know, for instance, in greyhounds and horses, there's only about a 0.7% difference in speed. Which uh, between the well, two between, sexes. Between two sexes, yeah. Yeah, which I find really interesting. Like, why is it that humans have more of an effect? Right. Yeah. I wonder what the difference is in hyenas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this really awesome thing where, where female hyenas, hyenas have this, like, pseudophallus and all this. Yeah, and they're much bigger than males. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I, I'm just like, ladies It's rule. completely kind of flipped around. It's kind of an interesting. Yeah, different animals have different um, amounts of sexual dimorphism. There's uh, anglerfish where the, the male fish are just like, reduced to a tiny little parasite. Oh, God, it's horrible. Horrifying. Their like mating <laughs> thing is like the they they bite into the female oh. and then they get digested oh. and leave nothing but their gonads. So like the females float around with all these male gonads attached to them. That I, feel, I feel like there's a joke in here somewhere, that but that's yeah. just mean. <laughs> 
I'm glad I'm not an ang- angler male fish. Right. You get to be I'm your fish, own person. Not, not <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I feel a little like left out in this podcast. We have a fisher and we have a fish and I've just got like nothing there. Yeah. I'm scared of, I'm scared of Teresa. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, so really, the people have con- scientists have really concluded that that the big reason we see differences in in running speed between male and female runners is is testosterone, and uh, testosterone affects so much about human biology. Like I even reading about it, I had no idea. Everything from fat quantity and distribution to the makeup of muscle fibers to the um, number of red blood cells in circulation and the ability of the body to circulate oxygen. So basically, test- testosterone is pretty awesome. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you're if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, I was about to say it's not for everyone, but it does have its advantages. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, for sure. Uh, so one of the actual uh, biggest differences when it comes to running is is hematocrit. So that's the amount of red blood cells as a percentage of the total blood volume, and men tend to have a hematocrit around forty five percent, while women are closer to around forty percent. And so that that right there has a huge impact on running. Sounds like not a huge difference, but it's such a small difference. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh, it's you surprising. would be amazed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say, so there. Um, we'll get into uh, for trans runners in a little bit, but um, yeah, some of the, the statistics and, and research I've seen on, on what impact uh, manipulating that has on runners is surprisingly huge. Hmm. So uh, since we've talked a little bit about sort of sexual dimorphism and sexual differences, let's get into some of the more complicated biology and, and how this is not as binary as, as we've kind of laid it out. We sort of talked about this simple version, um, but biology doesn't work that way. Uh, researchers now recognize that sex is more of a spectrum, and, and there are people whose anatomy and physiology just don't fit neatly into these these sort of boxes that we have. And each of those ways that you can see sexual differentiation can be sort of independently different in people. Uh, about 1 in 4,500 people, give or take, depending on how you measure these things, have what's uh, considered a disorder of sexual development. Um, so a DSD will... I will shorten it. Um, I've read there's some discussion about whether intersex or DSD is preferred. It hasn't been entirely. I, I, the Intersex Society of, of America is, is saying they do prefer DSD, but they keep intersex for historical reasons, and they don't want to overly medicalize people yeah, who may be fine. That's, that's, right? that's what I was going to say. It sounds sort of like disorder sort of implies I know. something needs to be corrected or fixed, and I don't yeah. think that was always the case or no and and so it's definitely um i'm i'm just going to kind of put it out there that i recognize that that these terms are really um yeah i don't know what the proper thing is do you have a comment on that tessa um most of the people i know admittedly um just sort of out in the community prefer intersex but that's just because it's easier to say Right, for right. sure. I guess yeah. uh, we'll go sounds for. Sounds very clinical. The other one. Like... Yeah, I know. It sounds really medical, and and it people you know don't necessarily have anything medically wrong with them. So, um, yeah. Okay, so let's go with intersex for now. Uh, there's lots and lots of different biological mechanisms that can cause this. Uh, everything from chromosomal differences. So people who have two X's and a Y, for instance, uh, that's Klinefelter syndrome. Uh, there can be changes in a single gene. Uh, the last listing I saw, there was a review of this in Nature a, a couple of years ago, listed something like 20 plus different mechanisms for right. for ways that people can can be intersex. The, the one I found really interesting was the mosaic. Yeah. Mosaic uh 
mosaicism. So they have some cells that are 2X chromosomes, some cells that are X and Y. Yeah, no. A mix of... Yeah, of both. It's, it's super interesting, uh, and the one of the most recent articles I saw published in the European Journal of Endocrinology has stated in contemporary medical practice there is no single solid biologic criterion for the determination of sex. There's so many ways that these things can be, can yeah, be think, different. Yeah, and I think this is really interesting too because the I think I feel like the average person, especially even me, a little bit before doing this episode, was like people think there is just male and female. Right. I yeah, mean, and it's just yeah, absolutely. People they are, don't realize that this is a like a continuum of just all sorts of things mm-hmm. and not not so strict. Yeah, I you know some of the really like sort of terrible discussion I've seen around some of these questions when it comes to like gender testing in the Olympics has been like, well, you just test their chromosomes and that's it. And it's like, no, like yeah. that just is not anywhere near for a mosaic it depends where you where you take their dna yeah, yeah. all sorts of things so yeah. for sure um one of, for competitive athletes one of the most significant conditions is something called androgen insensitivity syndrome so uh it's something we talked about in the runner's high episode for there to be a biological effect of a molecule there needs to be a receptor on the cell that docks uh, that molecule docks into in the case of the hormone testosterone, uh, there's something called the androgen receptor, and that's um, on the outside of the cell, and testosterone binds to that, that receptor, and that results in changes in gene expression and is, is primarily responsible for some of what we consider the biologically male phenotype. In people with androgen insensitivity syndrome... Oh, oh hold on. Oh, sorry. sorry. Just, yep. sorry. You said phenotype? Yes. Kind of oh, there. phenotype, right. Maybe so, you want to explain that too. So uh, in biology, we, we talk about genotype. That's that's what your genes say. And then phenotype is is the, res- the result of the that gene, right. of those genes. Okay. So um, so what kind of you see physically? And, and you can have all kinds of things. Like actually the beaver dam is considered a, a phenotype because that's a result of... The- ge- the beaver dam. Yes, the okay. dam itself. So uh, actually, Richard Dawkins wrote a whole book called The Extended Phenotype about these these things that are sort of biologically or genetically determined behaviors that can then lead into these like big sort of okay. um, phenotypes. I think I understand. Yeah, I was going to say tested it. I get that right as a fellow biologist. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I just had never <laughs> thought that beaver dams were actually a phenotype, but that's crazy. But yeah, generally speaking, and I mean, you can, the cool thing about genes and genomes is that... Um, Usually a genome will encode multiple phenotypes, but usually they'll only get activated under certain circumstances. And we can talk more about that when we get to the uh, uh, talking about trans runners. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so here we've got this androgen receptor on the outside of the cell. It's what testosterone docks to. If that receptor itself uh, doesn't work very well, then testosterone is not going to have near the effects that it would otherwise. Um, and so what you can have is people who have uh, the... XY chromosomes, they can have high testosterone, but since that androgen receptor isn't working, they have female external anatomy. So they they will have like a vulva, they will will develop breasts in some cases. Um, But again, the syndrome lies on a spectrum. Depending on how well that receptor works at accepting testosterone, you can have people with everything from sort of um, biologically male anatomy to biologically female, many possibilities in between. That's pretty, that's, yeah, that's 
testosterone is interesting. <laughs> is really like I've just been absolutely blown away by the effects of testosterone. Like yeah. as, as someone who works on insects, uh, so actually insects have similar hormones, but yeah, or, yeah. or, or insect. Well, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, say, are insects simpler or not? But uh, no, they are way more complicated. If you have an uh, animal that goes from a caterpillar to a butterfly, that actually they have the same genes, right? When they're a right. caterpillar and when they're a butterfly, it's just gene expression that oh, changes, crazy. right? And yeah. and the effects of like ju- juvenile hormone. Okay, which, well, yeah. Anyway, yeah, anyway sorry, I'm just gonna. <laughs> sneak entomology yeah, yeah, into this start talking about bugs this is actually the bug podcast yeah tess if you've got any astrobiology you want to throw in <laughs> most of what i deal with are like archaea bacteria which are usually a lot simpler so yeah not i, I mean i don't know if they respond to sex hormones but i suppose i could find out <laughs> you know i wouldn't be surprised if there's something uh, so uh, it's something that uh, is really important. Oh, I should also mention, uh, you can also have something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. That's another condition that can cause really high testosterone in in people with 2X chromosomes. Uh, and they can actually develop masculinized secondary sexual characteristics. Mm. So, and then again, you know, so these are people that may also be competitive athletes. So this is a, another condition. You can also have things like PCOS. So it's not an intersex condition per se. So that's polycystic ovarian syndrome, causes high testosterone, some secondary sexual character, like uh, male secondary sexual characteristics. But again, you know, this is just another way that we can see sort of variation in these these traits. Right. Yeah. So this will lead all... This this all will all make it clear as to why there you know gender testing in in sports is so fraught with so many difficulties. So much bullshit. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> so uh, since many women with uh, androgen insensitivity can have very typically female anatomy, there have been cases in um, in the Olympics or other um, sporting events where they might get results back from a DNA test that show they have a Y chromosome, and that can that can really be a shock and really um, be hard for for women. Um, and you might say, well, women with androgen insensitivity likely don't menstruate, but then again, neither do a lot of female athletes. So this issue is really fraught and can really, um, really mess with with people. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just wouldn't have thought about the menstruation thing. Oh, it's just- um, yeah, it's usually due to lower amounts of body fat, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's actually a big thing. And in, in, I think there's something like 20% of professional female athletes don't menstruate. Yeah, that yeah, sounds right. So, yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah, and so it's kind of like people are like, well, how did they not know they had an XY chromosome? Like, yeah. surely they would have this noticed is, they don't. This is the question I was kind of wondering. Yeah, but, you know, it's not uncommon for. The other thing is uh, with people with um, complete androgen insensitivity disorder. So what happens is that the testosterone gets converted to estrogen using uh, via an enzyme called aromatase. And since their body's pumping out such high levels of t- testosterone, because it's like body's basically saying, hey, what's going on? You know, why aren't you responding to this? Um, it gets converted to very high levels of estrogen. And as a result, they end up looking extremely feminine. Right. Wow. Yeah, actually, we were talking with uh, Kai Scott. Uh, he's a, a local runner here in, in Vancouver. And he was saying for trans men, if they end up taking too much testosterone, that some of that can get converted to estrogen then, um, probably through the same yeah, um, same pathway. Same pathway. Yeah, and so what ends up happening then is it actually reverses some of the of what they were, you know, trying to get with the yeah, masculinizing yeah, of yeah. the of the testosterone. And he's like, "Yeah, my doctor gave me a bit of a hard time about that." Right. So, so yeah, yeah, so I mean, as as we mentioned earlier, of course, testosterone mm-hmm. seems to be the biggest driver of what's most important for like athletic performance, mm-hmm. right? So I, all of this, of course, makes things quite 
confusing and for athletes with these yeah uh, with intersex with conditions intersex or, conditions yeah yeah uh and so there's also this kind of interesting um statistic that um profession women professional professional athletes are actually much more likely than the general population to have an intersex condition there's some rates are around somewhere around 140 times higher than the general population Right. And, you know, and it's hard to say why this might be. If they have complete androgen insensitivity, then that extra testosterone isn't necessarily doing anything for them. Uh, it might be some developmental effect. It might be that they have, like, again, there are sort of these partial conditions as well. So they may there may be some athletic um, ability that, that's added. But one of the really interesting things that I um, – found was that there's actually not a lot of evidence that endogenous testosterone production um, amongst women really affects athletic performance. Okay. So, yeah, this is like... I find that uh, contradictory. Yeah, I find that really interesting as well. And I don't know... It's something that's really not well studied is the conclusion that most of the endocrinology papers I've seen have said. Um, and so we'll talk about this a little more with the IAF. Um, right. So, so that's just endogenous testosterone. Though. Yes. So rather than testosterone, course... they're taking. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. But since there is an effect of testosterone on red blood cell count, it may be in distance running that there is an advantage to having high testosterone, but it's not well, um, really, really well understood. But there, there have been some horrifying effects of some of the policies around intersex athletes. Right. So there's two athletes that I think you wanted to mention. Uh, Duty Chan, Duty Chan, and, yeah. and Castor Semenya, 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 I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, both of these are athletes. Um, they're both. Uh, they've both uh, identified women athletes who've been running in the women's categories. And what happens is they did really well um, in their respective um, sports. So Castor Semenya is a, I believe, eight hundred meter runner, and she's been running out of South Africa. Duty Chan is Indian. And uh, they do really well in their sport, and all of a sudden, all these sort of questions come up about, well, are you really a woman? And um, because, and they, some of what I've been reading is, you know, there's this problem for intersex athletes where they have to be good, but not too good to stand out, right? Because right. if you're an athlete, you're someone who is on the extreme. Like if you're an elite athlete, you are on the extreme of human physiology. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Right. I mean, of course, this isn't a problem for male. Yeah, no uh, one's going to question whether or not. Yeah, this is. There's no question. Yeah, but it's, only, it's only it's only the women's. The yeah, women, the women's. Yeah, <laughs> it's only and, the women. And you know, people would say, "Oh, well, they look too muscular or whatever." And so, what ended up happening is that uh, they both had problems with. Um, they were. They both had issues where uh, it was questioned. They had to undergo this really horrifying um, gender testing that was really intrusive. Um, and, you know, Duty Chan herself, I mean, it turned out um, – so the – it was suggested they had high testosterone and that had to be controlled. And and so Duty Chan actually brought this towards the IAF uh, committee. And, and as she testified to the committee, she said, I have not doped or cheated. I am unable to un- understand why I'm asked to fix my body in a certain way simply for t- participation as a woman. I was born a woman, reared up as a woman. I identify as a woman. And I believe I should be a- allowed to compete with other women, many of whom are either taller than me or come from more privileged backgrounds, things that s- most certainly give them an edge over me. Yeah, that's pretty bizarre. It's pretty bizarre to demand that an athlete take medication when she's perfectly healthy. When they're healthy, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it, it's yeah, blows my mind that they would they would even suggest it. But 
And and so there was some suggestion that she would have to take uh, testosterone, like antiandrogens, to be allowed to compete in the women's category. But the IAF now has actually suspended for two years any requirements for testosterone testing in women athletes um, as a result of duties um, bringing this forward. And and really, they concluded um, in that in that hearing, there's no study has proved that natural testosterone in the male range provides women with a competitive advantage commensurate with the 10 to 12 percent advantage that elite male athletes typically have over elite female athletes in comparable events. In fact, the IAAF's own witness estimated the performance advantage of women with high testosterone to be between 1 and 3 percent, and the court played down the 3 percent figure because it was based on limited unpublished data. Yeah, it's a pretty small margin. Yeah, so three percent. I think that's the same advantage you get from those stupid Aeroswift. Oh, things. the Aeroswift tape that like people the put on tape, themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes you aerodynamic. You get one percent advantage anyway. So, but you know, and it's hard. This is a complicated issue that there there hasn't been a lot of research on for sure. Um, and and this gets even more interesting once we start talking about trans athletes, which uh, will be after we we talk about how we've kind of gotten into it sideways. But uh, for a long time, professional sports has been putting women through this enormous, ridiculous rigmarole that they called gender testing. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, as it turns out, our podcast went a lot longer than we expected this time. And we have decided to chop it into two parts. So stay tuned for part two of Gender and Running, uh, where we'll discuss the terrible nude parades that female athletes were put through for a number of years and a variety of other topics regarding trans runners. Visit our website at sideronner.com and feel free to send us your science of running questions. Or tweet us at SciRunner. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash This has been the SciRunner Podcast. Your source for all things science and running.